time together this morning meditating or pondering on the idea of faith. Mainly, what is faith? And how do we obtain or cultivate a faith that is pleasing to God? The other idea I would like to present in the first part of this message is the idea that we, what we place our faith in shapes our life philosophy. Um, what we put our faith in forms our worldview. And the definition I found for philosophy per Merriam-Webster was the study of basic ideas about knowledge, truth, right and wrong, religion, and the nature and meaning of life. So our philosophy, if we stay true to it, will be the filter for our thoughts, it'll be the filter for our words, and it'll be the filter for our actions. The key word there, or key words, is if we stay true to our philosophy. And as I studied this week, it became apparent that there are certain earmarks or characteristics of a true Christian faith. Um, and I don't have these on the, on the screen, I, sorry. Um, those characteristics are that faith is a gift. That's the first one and maybe the most important one. I don't know if you could, if you could uh, arrange them in importance, but that one's very important. Faith is a gift. Faith needs to be rooted in something objective. And faith is not circumstantial. Those two are kind of saying the same thing. Um, faith calls you into obedience, and your faith will be tested. So let's start comparing these ideas with the Word of God and make sure that they line up. Um, and if you guys want, Hebrews chapter 11, I have a lot of verses that we'll put on the screen, but Hebrews chapter 11 is kind of what we work out of, or I'll reference quite a bit. So first one of Hebrews chapter 11 says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. I think that that verse on its own, without the context of the rest of the Bible, would probably settle well with most people, no matter their particular philosophy or their particular worldview. Just kind of an easygoing verse. I'll read that verse again. The assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. But if we continue on a little bit further in Hebrews chapter 11, we see in verse 3 a mention of past events. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So those two verses kind of start to hem in what faith is or where it starts. So it's based on past realities, a future hope based on past realities. And the past realities part is where all the philosophies and all the world religions start to separate. Right from the very beginning is where this big riff starts. So there's two philosophies I'm going to contrast here. Um, and the, the beliefs and theory of evolution are one, and the foundation of Christianity the other. I would like to contrast how life came to be from the view of someone who ascribes to the theory of evolution and how life began according to God's word. Both of them claiming truth about our origins. So per evolution, everything came to be from the combination of time and chance. Some 15 billion years ago, the universe emerged, the universe emerged from a hot, dense sea of matter and energy. 
As the cosmos expanded and cooled, it spawned galaxies, stars, planets, and life. Things just became alive randomly from an explosion. Uh, that's also known as the Big Bang Theory. And then in contrast, we're going to look at the Word of God, starting in Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not, come, has not overcome it. That's one of my favorites. I don't know what it is about that one, but that's just, there's a lot there. Spend a lot of time in that one. We're not going to. Um, and then the one I previously read was Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen is not made out of things that are visible. I do think that there is a possibility that there was an explosion when God said, let there be light. There may have been hot, dense seas of matter, but none of it until he spoke it into existence, and not a speck of dust outside of his sovereignty. And that right there is the contrast to these two beginnings. Evolution says no God, just chance and time. If you roll the dice long enough, this is what you get. One big accident. This idea of chance and time is now the foundation for an evolutionist's faith. God's word says that the beginning of the universe was on purpose and with design, giving life a purpose to take dominion, to be fruitful and multiply. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And I always like to tag on John Piper's extension to that, that God is most glorified when you are most satisfied in him. Um, on that note, I, I encourage you guys to ask the youth group kids, what's the meaning to life? And I think after the, the years of being with them, they all know that the meaning of life, man's chief end, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. I have confidence. You ask just about any kid in youth group, they're going to know the answer to that. And again, um, parents doing, it's just something I've been able to, sh to help sharpen up. But it makes me smile when I, when I hear kids answer that way. So, these two worldviews start at the same place in time, but head two completely opposite directions. Christianity is moving in the direction of design and purpose from an objective, all-powerful God. And there's that objective part. Christianity's faith is rooted in something objective. It's not changing, not circumstantial. Towards a future where all things will be restored and reconciled back to him. All things created by him and for his glory. Evolution, on the other side of this comparison, is rolling down the hill of chance and survival of the fittest towards a future where the sun burns out, cold and darkness eventually conquer over light and life. If you ask me, that is a future of hopelessness. There's nothing to look forward to. Again, requiring large amounts of faith, if you will, to believe that all of this complexity came together through randomness. The example I'd like to make, I, I take from my own life, I build custom rifles for a living. And I take components like a barrel blank, a rifle action, 
a trigger and a stock, and I carefully machine all these parts together um, until, they, until they form a functioning rifle and an aesthetically pleasing rifle who looks like someone paid attention when they put it together, or at least I hope. That's the goal. Um, and if we were to compare this philosophy of evolution to this, according to evolution, an intelligent designer, me, the intelligent design, the intelligent one, uh, the intelligent designer would not be needed to put these rifles together. All you would need are the parts and some tools and something to mix them get together or something to explode them together enough times that eventually it would spit out a custom rifle. And, it's, and you think about that, if you apply that to anything else, any other trade or anything else where it looks like something was designed or created, uh, take a house or a car, you can take those parts and mix them together and never ever get something that resembles like it was built on purpose, if that makes sense. Um, I've often heard the analogy of a tornado ripping through a junkyard and producing a Ferrari on the other end. Like, it just doesn't make sense. It's not, it's not logical. So, that being said, this worldview is not reasonable, nor is it scientific, actually, actually violating several laws of biology and thermodynamics. One of the laws of biology that it uh, violates is the law of biogenesis, which in a nutshell says that life does not assemble. Life only comes from life. So life doesn't assemble itself. Living has to come from living. The biggest difference between material and living organisms is that living organisms are material organized by information, animated to life by information. That information came from where? Have you ever got information from a pile of dirt? I mean, maybe the farmers do. I don't know. Maybe... Tim, do you go out and lick the dirt or talk to it? Where are you before you farm? Yes. So maybe it's not ringing true. I don't know. You can get some information from inanimate objects. But it does, non-living things don't bring forth living things. So where does that information come from? It comes from the word of God. Unlike the philosophy of evolution, the biblical worldview provides us with a reasonable explanation and purpose for life. The other hurdle that evolution has to overcome is that of morality. Simply put, survival of the fittest has no room or explanation for morality in humans. If the entire world were to be logically consistent with this philosophy and see it out to the end, we would have zero laws in this world. Because what do laws do? Laws impose morality. Do not murder. Do not steal. There's morality behind most laws. Um, Side note, I don't mean to sidetrack too much, but as a rifle builder, I say most laws. The ATF, they're just kind of fun police. So anyway, now that's on the internet. Now I'm going to be in trouble. But laws do impose morality. Without the restraint of morality and law, things would be absolute chaos. Adhering to this philosophy of evolution would not be productive to life. It wouldn't be conducive. And the reason that it wouldn't be conducive to life is that it did not square with reality. It was never rooted in something that was real or objective. In other words, bad input creates bad output. You put bad numbers into a calculator, you get bad numbers out of a calculator. And even if morality did spring forth as a product of evolution, it would not be anchored 
and anything objective would be continually changing. To borrow a quote from Norman Geisler, truth is not invented, it is discovered. Which brings me to another question. If we demand such accuracy and truth when it comes to financial matters, if we demand accuracy and truth with medical matters, and why not? Medical matters eventually become matters of life and death. Why are we okay being so pluralistic when it comes to issues of morality and eternity? And we see that in our society today when morality is questioned or morality is moved. Um, it creates chaos. It doesn't bring forth life. So what I have just spoke about barely skips off the surface of an immensely deep and complex argument. And that argument is the existence of God. And I want to be sure to say that I didn't build up a straw man here and slap an evolution sticker on it and poke him with a stick or try to tear it down. I brought these things up to show that they are not benign ideas. They have serious and deadly implications. Like I mentioned, this is an ex extremely vast subject, and I know that there are many men and women far more intelligent than myself that would argue from the grounds of secularism. Secularism. So this is not a jab at anyone's intelligence, but I do not believe that this is a matter strictly of the mind. I believe that these matters approach the human heart. I believe that the main reason someone would disregard the evidence that is in support of God's existence, the one thing that gets in the way, is human pride. Romans chapter 1, verses 21 through 22 say, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise, but they became fools. So people, another, uh, another quote here from Blaise Pascal, people almost invariably arrive at their beliefs not on the basis of proof, but on the basis of what they find attractive. So faith has to be rooted in something objective, and faith also has, like we read in Hebrews, faith has a future that we're looking forward to. So we have something objective in the past and something in the future to look forward to. So that's what we've, that's what we've given faith so far. Um, I'd like to share one more example from my life um, of what can happen when your faith is not rooted in something legitimate. Um, for me, namely, that was a vague and ethereal God, uh, not the God of the Bible, but just a God in general that was whoever I wanted that God to be. Um, and I want to show how this can lead or point out that it can lead to um, a very distorted worldview, a very whimsical worldview. Um, and eventually that leads to, to heartache and chaos. Um, so I have, for whatever reason, have always been very encouraged, very moved by music. I really enjoy it. I can't sing. I can't play a lick of it, but I really enjoy it. Maybe like an art collector. I don't know. You know they probably don't paint, but they collect it. Um, before my conversion, I didn't have a solid worldview. I was pretty whimsical as far as my philosophy was concerned. I would just float along to the beat of one drum to the next moving from worldview to worldview, depending on what genre of music I was into at the time. One song I remember really enjoying was a song titled Faith by George Michael. Show of hands, anybody familiar with that song? A few more than first service. And I had to ask, because like, I asked my wife, like, Kaylee, you heard this song? She's like, no. And I asked Ian, you heard the song? No. And I was like, man, I am not relative at all. Um, I get that a lot. I'm used to that, like a youth group. Like, I'm starting to get old. I'll reference, uh, I'll, I'll ask a question, and it'll be crickets at youth group, and then I'll, I'll do the first. Bueller, 
Bueller. You guys from there? The youth group kids are like, is he having a stroke? Like, what's wrong with him? And like, my references don't, they don't land. Um, so anyways, I was curious. I was like, is this one, is anybody going to know this one? Um, so for those of you that don't know this song, it came out in 1987, the same year I was born. So as a little guy, the lyrics had no impact on me. It was just a catchy tune to wiggle to. At this point in my life, it's benign. Um, but if you aren't familiar with the song, it's about George. George Michaels writes this song. It's about being caught in a dysfunctional relationship that he wants out of. But there's a physical aspect of the relationship that he's not wanting to lose. And there's a fear that if he does let this relationship go, he will not be able to find a suitable replacement. So here's a small section from the lyrics of the song. And sorry to those of you who know this song, because it's probably going to be stuck in your head now. But, I, but don't worry. I hope by the end of this sermon, this song is ruined for you. And at least you won't listen, or at least you won't listen to it in the same way ever again. So the lyrics go, Before this river becomes an ocean, before you throw my heart back on the floor, oh baby, I reconsider my foolish notion. Well, I need someone to hold me, but I'll wait for something more. And then the chorus goes, yes, I've got to have faith. Ooh, I've got to have faith. Because I've got to have faith, faith, faith. I've got to have faith, faith, faith. It makes me cringe a little bit to think that this was the music I used to wiggle to as a little boy. <clears throat> what is even worse than that is the idea of me being a young man that has adopted the idea that the story told in this song was a great example of what it meant to have faith. This is where the benign part becomes dangerous. While George and I were placing our hope in an idea <clears throat> that, circumstances and rela- that circumstances and relationships would straighten out in the future, in the events not seen, our faith actually had no foundation. Our faith was originating from our own emotions, or at least my faith encouraged along by George's song. My faith was originating from my own desires. I kept telling myself, I just got to have faith and everything will just get better. I just got to keep a positive attitude and everything will be okay. Then wrecked relationship after wrecked relationship, party after party, nothing seemed to get better. I still felt hopeless. My faith began to crumble. My worldview was not lining up with what I was experiencing. Why? I believed in God. I kept a positive attitude. Why aren't things getting better for me? Because what I was calling faith was actually rebellion. Rebellion against the creator of the universe. I was worshiping idols. My philosophy had led me directly away from what I was created to do. As Paul puts it in Romans, I was worshiping the creation and not the creator. My faith at this time wasn't a true biblical faith. Like I mentioned before, I believed in God, but I didn't really know who he was or what he wanted from me. Which brings me to another point. Just believing in a God in general does not produce real faith. James chapter 2, verse 19 says, You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Again, the point being, my faith didn't have something objective, and my future hope was something very tellish. It was made up in my own heart. It was made up by my own desires. My faith was whimsical at best. So it is not enough to just believe in God. In fact, that isn't even close to having a faith that is pleasing to God. 
that totally misses the mark. A lot of the other world religions have faith starting with a divine being or higher power at the origin of the universe. So a reasonable Christian faith must have some specifics about it that make it a true Christian faith. So I'd like to to talk about those specific earmarks of a Christian faith now. Um, Before I do, and I didn't have this in my notes, um, I shared it with First Service. The reason I wanted to be clear that I don't share that story just to share a story about my life. Um, What eventually kind of kicked me out of that that philosophy or that worldview was a a random friend from high school uh, getting a hold of me on Facebook 10 years ago, 11 years ago, whatever it was, and saying, hey, I'm, I'm preaching at the Neighborhood Alliance Church. I think that's close to where you live. And yeah, it's just half a mile away. Um, and at this point in my life, I'm in that hopelessness. I'm in that circle of not knowing why things aren't straightening out for me. Um, and there, the gospel was preached. Uh, I heard the gospel, the hearing of God's word. Kickstarted a faith in me. Um, so I wanted to share that because I know that there's a real reality that there's people here that um, are wondering why things aren't straightening out. I believe in God. I'm here at church. Um, but I want to encourage you to keep listening um, and lean in to God's word and find out who he really is. Um, so that's the reason for that story, for that example for my life. So to define faith a little more clearly, I found a definition from the New City Catechism. Um, we've spent some time in this book, uh, this catechism at youth group. And so the definition goes, faith in Jesus Christ is acknowledging the truth of everything that God has revealed in his word, trusting in him, and also receiving and resting on him alone for salvation, as he is offered to us in the gospel. So, where does faith come from, and what do we do with it? Romans chapter 10, verse 17 says, So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Galatians 3, 2, Let me ask you only this, Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law, or by hearing with faith? Ephesians 2, 8, For by grace you have been saved, faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Um, so we see that faith comes from hearing God's word, and we see that faith is a gift. And so that's lining up with those bullet points we had at the beginning. Uh, comes from hearing God's word, which is objective, uh, and it's a gift. So this definition seems to line up well with those verses. Uh, there's no other way to know the God of the universe other than to hear about him through his word. Not only hearing it, but trusting in it. Faith is a gift and something to be, to be received. When faith is received, a very important thing called salvation comes alongside of it. Faith in God's word brings us to salvation. As this verse explains, as this verse in Ephesians explains, it's not of our own doing. It is a gift. We simply receive it and rest in it so that we have no doing in it and bringing it about. And I always like to um, dig into the, the buts, the tensions that, that are put into this. So I'm going to read to you guys a section from James chapter 2, starting in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister poorly clothed and lacking in daily food And one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. 
I will show you my faith by my works. So after reading that, faith isn't just receiving and resting? Is that what he's saying? No, faith is resting and receiving. But faith has to be alive to rest and receive. So let's take a look at Hebrews chapter 11. I'm just going to read the first parts of these verses. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called out. Then verse 17. By faith, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. Verse 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents. Verse 29. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. These were all actions, actions of obedience. Obedience is a characteristic of faith. And I believe that that squares with what we read in James. These acts do not bring them salvation, but they did demonstrate a heart that received and trusted in God's word. Receiving and trusting are, if you will, acts of obedience. So when we receive this gift of faith, I believe God has called us to partake in it, to strengthen it, to cultivate it. A lot like we had no part in bringing about creation, um, but God, God calls us to partake in it. God calls us to take dominion in it. Faith is not to be hidden away. Sorry, um, one thing I'm learning to do is like transition things, and so there actually needs, I need to have a space in here. I'm going to end that thought. We had no part in bringing about creation, but God did call us to take dominion in it. Break. Shift gears. <laughs> I'm learning. Faith is not to be hidden away. Matthew chapter 5, 14, 16. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives a light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So I ask you, is your faith on display? Well, whether you like it or not, your faith is on display every moment of every day. Your wife, your husband, your kids, your coworkers watch your responses to challenges, losses, and victories. So your faith is on display every minute of every day. Um, and I think of uh, Abraham and Isaac when they're getting ready. They, they travel for three days, I believe it is, to this place that God's going to show them this mountain and he's going to tell them to climb up this mountain. Um, and I imagine that Isaac's asking his, you know, kind of like looking to his dad for cues. Um, and the Bible doesn't really say that like what happened once they, well, let me back up. Before they head up the mountain, Isaac asks his dad, Dad, we have, we have wood and we have a knife. Um, we don't have a lamb. We don't have anything for the sacrifice. And Abraham tells his son, God will provide the sacrifice. And so I think that's a neat example of, I'm sure that uh, Isaac's faith was built up by his fathers because what they do after that, no more questions asked. They, they go up the mountain. Um, they continued on in faith together. Um, so my point in that was your kids are watching, and unfortunately, it's every minute of every day they're around you. Um, so your faith is in, on display, and, and uh, just be aware of that. Um, the Bible doesn't really say that once they got up there, if how much faith Isaac had, like if dad had to like club him and then bind him, or if 
It was just a binding, and he laid them on there. Uh, there's no indication of struggle. I think Isaac's faith was probably, um, was probably strong. But Isaac's hesitation before they headed up the mountain was put to rest by his father's faith in God's goodness, that God will provide. A living faith is going to produce works that demonstrate your submission to God's word. Living faith is going to produce fruit. The fruit isn't the faith. The fruit is the evidence of, of faith, all for the purpose of glorifying God and in hope that others would be drawn to him. Brothers and sisters, I'm truly grateful to be able to address you as such. Since I've been a part of this church body, I've seen the word of God preached faithfully from this pulpit or what used to be the music stand. I've watched this body grow in numbers. I've watched the faith of all of you as you've served in obedience, been generous in obedience, taught in obedience, loved one another in obedience, and everything else that goes on here. You have encouraged my own faith greatly. Something that I think is distinct in this church body's obedience is that it's a joyful obedience. It's not a begrudging obedience. Um, the only type of obedience that's worth anything is a joyful obedience, or at least when it comes to our relationship with God. Um, I'm still accepting begrudging obedience from my four-year-old, um, only because my fathering hasn't been perfect, but yeah. So with that being said, um, I think these verses kind of help point that out, of where that joyful obedience comes from. Um, and this was pointed out to me in, uh, in men's study a couple weeks ago. I got to be a part of the last or got to join the last, last one of the year a couple weeks ago. And uh, the men are in the Gospel of John. And David pointed this part out that I thought was, was, uh, was really good. And so uh, John chapter 14, verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And then John chapter 15, verses 4 and 5, abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself. Unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So I, th I hope that clarifies that we can't do anything, that our faith is nothing unless we're abiding in Jesus and he's abiding in us, that our love and our hope is placed in him. The objective, the objective one. Um, so, communicating that obedience attached to our faith will be, will be joyful. It will be rooted in a love for Jesus Christ and in no one else and nothing else. Um, so here's, a, here's another break and we're going to shift gears. Our faith will be tested. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 8. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So I think it's safe to say that everyone will meet trials. And it doesn't seem to be a matter of if, but when. And verse 3 indicates that the people 
The purpose of the trial is to test your faith. Verse 2 says that when we approach these tests of faith, we should approach them with joy. And I think commonly the word joy is associated with the emotion, with the emotion of happiness. But I think here in this context, the word joy has a lot more substance. Um, If we look at the example of Abraham's obedience and being willing to sacrifice his son, um, and remember that being willing to sacrifice his son, all of God's promises, not all of his promises, but the covenant that God made with Abraham that he'll have offspring that outnumber the stars and that Abraham will have an heir to hand things down to um, kind of hinges on, on Isaac making it to fatherhood, right? Like if Isaac doesn't make it there, it doesn't seem like that covenant could be fulfilled. So Abraham has, has this, this covenant with God, and I can't imagine that when God asks him to sacrifice his son that he does this happily, if that makes sense. I would say that he obeyed joyfully, but not happily. So maybe, maybe make a little divide between joyfully and happily. Or what about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? He was sorrowful, yet obedient. Not everything that the Lord tests us with, not all of our service to him, is going to be sorrowful. But obviously, sometimes these tests are sorrowful, which means that joy has to be impervious to circumstance and rooted in Jesus Christ. If we think back to the circumstances I previously mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11, we will see that for the people in these tests, most definitely felt the wind that drives the double-mindedness mentioned in verse 8 of James. One account of that that I think is a great example of wind and waves and everything confusing affecting someone's faith is found in Matthew chapter 14, verses 25 through 33. And it says, in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. And you guys know that that's Jesus walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to, walk, to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, and the, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. So, the words, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? Jesus asked. This is a great question. For those of us that have placed our faith in Jesus, why do we doubt? What drives that wind of doubt? What causes our double-mindedness? If we look at this example, Peter saw the wind and he was afraid. So maybe we can conclude that a lot, like when we receive faith, obedience follows, Maybe the same thing is true, that when doubt enters our mind, or maybe better yet, when doubt enters our heart through our mind, fear is close to follow. Was it reasonable for Peter to look and see that he was walking on water, and that it was windy out, and that maybe he shouldn't be doing that? Was it reasonable for him to see that and think that? I think I probably would. 
So was it reasonableness that caused this lack of faith? As Christians, do we have to abandon or trade in our reason in order to have a faith that doesn't fail? Maybe we can answer that question with another question. Was it reasonable for Jesus to ask Peter to get out of the boat? Was it reasonable for God to ask Abraham to sacrifice his son? Was it reasonable for God to ask ask the men at Jericho to go to battle with trumpets and blow on them until the walls fell down? Was that reasonable for God to ask these things? I say absolutely yes, it was reasonable for God to ask these things. Why? Because of who's asking them, who is commanding, who commanded the universe, the skies and the seas into existence. What God says goes. What God says is reality. What God says is reasonable. So to doubt in God's word is to be unreasonable. I'd like to share a quote from C.S. Lewis. Um, it's kind of in fashion, or that's what I normally do when I'm up here. I don't think I've ever been up here and not quoted C.S. Lewis. Um, so the quote goes, There are things in learning to swim or to climb which look dangerous and aren't. Your instructor tells you it's safe. You have good reason from past experience to trust him. Perhaps you can even see for yourself by your own reason that it is safe. But the crucial question is, will you be able to go on believing this when you actually see the cliff edge below? Or do you actually feel yourself unsupported in the water? You will have no rational grounds for disbelieving. It is your senses and your imagination that are going to attack belief. Here, as in the New Testament, the conflict is not between faith and reason, but between faith and sight. We can face things which we know to be dangerous. Our real trouble is often with things which we know to be safe, but which look dreadful. Our faith in Christ was not so much when real arguments come against it as when it looks improbable, when the whole world takes on the desolate look, which really tells us much more about the state of our passions and even our digestion than about reality. Peter was walking on the water, but once he took his eyes off Jesus, unreasonableness and doubt set in. The circumstances and emotions distracted Peter from Jesus. Jesus' command to step out and walk. Another break. (laughs) When Jesus calls us out of the boat, we are called into the desert. When we are called to do something by God, focus on all that he has promised and given us in Jesus, and joyful obedience will be quick to follow. Do not be persuaded by the circumstances and confusion that make disobedience seem like the reasonable response. Um, We just looked at some tests and some acts of faith that were um, maybe larger. Um, I can't remember the last time I was tested or asked to walk on water, so I don't know if large is the right word for these tests, but they're different than the tests that we normally see on a daily basis. Um, But I do believe that we are tested on a daily basis. In the New Testament, there are numerous examples of people coming to Jesus asking for help. People that know, if I can just get close to him and touch his garment. If I could just get close enough and kneel at his feet, if I could just get close enough to Jesus to wash his feet and to serve him, he will provide the peace I'm seeking. And in all these examples, what does Jesus say? Your faith has made you well. Your faith has saved you. 
Your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. I think it's our tests. Though they aren't walking on water, it's just a matter of surrendering. Every little bit, every little aspect, surrendering, asking for Jesus, wanting to be close to him. I know that every day we are faced with temptations of all varieties. Temptation we know falsely sit in God's seat on the throne of our hearts and our minds. For whatever reason, we use reason to say, well, I've got that under control. Or maybe I don't really have time to address that issue with my wife. I don't really have time to address that issue with my kids right now. Or if I just have another drink, I'll be able to think more clearly about it. Whatever the excuse or reason might be, faith says just surrender. Just trust Jesus. Just ask him for help. In these tests, God provides, or sorry, when Isaac asked his father, where is the lamb for the sacrifice? Abraham told him, God will provide a sacrifice. This is true for all the other tests of our faith that we see in the Bible. God provides everything needed for these tests. God shows us that he is, in fact, the good God that is revealed to us in Scripture. You think about when Jesus pulled Peter into the boat and what happened after that, they're like, okay, you are. You are the Son of God, right? God reveals who he is. The God of Scripture shows himself in the tests. He provides for us in these tests. And it seems like in my life, I have never felt closer to God than when I feel like I'm in a test, when he is the only thing that seems reasonable. Sorry, when he is the only thing that seems reasonable is when everything seems right. Let God provide for you in these tests and let God bless you through your faith. So Hebrews chapter 12, verses one through two. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great, so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So one last thing. Um, this is in Hebrews. Sorry, that was, that was kind of the application. We need to let go of our sin. Uh, we need to run with endurance and trust in the foundation that's been laid before us. Again, I'm learning. Break. One last thing. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 36 through 40. Others suffered, mocking and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens, caves, and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. So don't be discouraged when things don't look the way you think they should. If we look back to the test of faith we have talked about, most of them don't appear safe. But as Ian talked about several weeks ago, there are no promises of safety. There are no promises of comfort. There are no promises of prosperity. Don't make it your goal to get through the test. Make it your goal to surrender and let God complete his work in you through the test. Be blessed through your faith. Um, 
So I don't know where this, this came from, but this is kind of a prayer that I think captures that really well. Um, a lot of times, I know I've been in tests or had hard things ahead and prayed for a specific thing um, and maybe got something different, something that didn't look like what I was praying for. And anyways, I thought this, this really communicated that well. I, I found this in an Alistair Begg sermon. Um, it says, he prayed for strength that he might achieve. He was made weak that he might obey. He prayed for riches that he might be happy. He received poverty that he might be wise. He prayed for power, that he might have the praise of men. He received weakness, that he might feel the need of God. He asked for all things, that he might enjoy life. He received life, that he might enjoy all things. He received nothing that he asked for. He received nothing that he asked for, but all that he hoped for. His prayer was answered, and he was most blessed. Um, so I, I don't know, I think that... that that captures it perfectly. A lot of times, um, like I said, we have, if we have that firm foundation, we have Christ, the work he did on the cross, and we have the restoration of things, the things hoped for, the things in the future. Um, it doesn't necessarily matter how confusing or disorienting the things are, how big the waves are around us. Um, we have those th- two things to focus on, and God's going to provide exactly what's needed then and there in that test. We just have to surrender. Um, so a lot of times these tests look scary. They might look unsafe when we head into them. Um, but please, just have faith. And so I'd like to end with a quote from a line of the book titled The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Um, if you don't know, that's a, a fictional story about a group of kids that find a magical uh, wardrobe that leads to a, a kingdom that uh, a lion rules, a lion named Aslan, and they're in a battle against the great white witch. Um, so this is when the kids are getting ready to meet the lion. Aslan is a lion. The lion. The great lion. Ooh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall, f- I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Jesus isn't safe, brothers and sisters, but he is good, and Jesus is the king. So have faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, um, like your word says, we have faith, but help us believe. Help us to know you more. Um, Help us to have the patience needed to allow you to work in our lives through these tests, through these trials. Um, And in the end of it, you would be glorified for the purpose of your glory. Um, We love you. We thank you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.